Welcome to this episode of the Revolution and Ideology podcast. Uh, we're continuing our Myth is America series, though this episode is pretty unique because it fits nicely between uh, the Myth is America series and the Revolution and Ideology series. We're going to be covering some specific theories by Lysander Spooner, and we'll talk about who he is and a little bit about what he believes uh, throughout the episode. We're focusing this time on his work, uh, The Constitution of No Authority, which is going to fit nicely into our timeline on the Myth is America series. Uh, this is the first episode where we have a guest. So we are joined here by uh, Alan Pitts, and I'll let him introduce himself. Hello. Um Alan Pitts, uh, I've been involved in movement work and political theory for about a decade. Uh, came in the Spooner about seven or eight years ago, and I've been trying since then to introduce everybody to him. So uh, I hope everyone enjoys the conversation. Yeah, in fact, the first time I had, I admittedly never heard of Lysander Spooner in my life, but one time, I don't know, this is probably a couple of years ago, uh, me, Jared, and Alan were having beers at a local sports bar, and Alan mentioned him for the first time. I had literally never heard of him. Uh, so Jared's here too. Hi, it's me. I'm not doing a lot of talking this time, so I'll, I'll save you guys. <laughs> yeah, so we have uh, me, I'm Nick, Jared, and Alan here. Uh, Alan's been gracious enough to bring us some whiskey to sip on while we're doing this episode. So this is the first episode where we have some alcohol involved. So we'll see how that works out as well. I'm going to kick it off with a short bio of Lysander Spooner, uh, just so we can get a little bit about his life, and then we'll begin to dissect the work. Uh, so he's born in 1808. Uh, his family lives on a rural farm in Massachusetts. He's one of nine children, so he has a lot of siblings. Uh, and basically, his early, super early life is kind of uneventful. He lives on his family's farm. He moves to Worcester, Massachusetts, and begins studying law at the age of 25. And he studies under a man by the name of John Davis, who goes on to become governor of Massachusetts and then a senator. Uh, when Davis becomes governor, Spooner then goes and studies under a man by the name of Charles Allen, uh, who was a state senator, and then later becomes the chief justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. So in his law practice, he has some actually pretty influential men as his mentors in the beginning. At the time in Massachusetts, there was a state law that required uh, college graduates to study in another lawyer's office for three years before they could establish their own practice. And if you didn't graduate from college, you had to study for five years before you could open your own practice. Uh, with the encouragement of both of his mentors, Davis and Allen, in 1833, Spooner, who never attended college, uh, opens his own practice after only studying for three years. So his fir first act as a lawyer is basically in defiance of this law that would have otherwise required him to study for five years. So I think that's pretty interesting and gives us an idea early on kind of of how he feels about the law. Um, and then his first act as lawyer was to challenge that law, which established the three- and five-year terms. And he challenges that uh, on the stance that it unfairly targets the poor who wouldn't have been able to afford college, that they have to study for longer uh, because they haven't attended college. And interestingly, largely as a result of his efforts and his mentors being influential men in the state of Massachusetts, that law gets repealed in 1836. So his first act as a lawyer is to challenge this unjust law in his opinion, and he is successful. However, 
his law practice itself is not successful. Uh, it never really flourishes. And he leaves Massachusetts, actually, and tries his hand at land speculation in Ohio for a few years. He fails at this as well. And he moves back to the family farm in rural Massachusetts in 1840. Uh, a couple of years later, in 1844, he starts a company. He's a bit of an entrepreneur. And he starts the American Letter Mail Company, which is a mail company to compete with the United Postal Service. Uh, I was kind of unaware of this period in history, but it was actually common. There were many companies that were competing with the USPS uh, because postage rates through the USPS were super expensive. So there were a lot of competitors that came up trying to do it much more cheaply. But as you might imagine, the uh, US government hated everything about this and they start passing some more repressive laws to essentially solidify their monopoly on the postal market. And as a result of this, Spooner shuts down his mail service in 1851. Uh, just a brief point on uh, his opinion on abolitionism, because this is one of uh, the works that he's most famous for. He publishes an essay titled The Unconstitutionality of Slavery in 1845. Uh, we're actually going to probably spend a whole episode on this when we get to the abolitionist period. Um, but in this essay, he argues that even though the writers of the Constitution did not intend to outlaw slavery, that the text itself does not permit slavery. So he argues that it's unconstitutional for slavery to exist in the United States. This creates widespread debate amongst abolitionists themselves, uh, but I don't want to dwell too long on that. We're, like I said, going to have a whole episode on that. Eventually, uh, we'll talk about Spooner's ideas in that arena a little bit more uh, later on in the series. Uh, and he dies in 1879, uh, in Boston. He's 79 years old when he dies. Uh, I have a little bit here on my notes about his legacy, but I think we'll probably pick that up at the end after we've dissected this work and sort of his ideas and how they've been picked up by more modern uh, sort of political ideologies, but we'll touch on that a little bit later. So that's basically his life in a nutshell, as quickly as I could possibly make it, just so we have an idea of who this man is, some of the things that he did, and kind of a little bit about uh, his basic groundings. Uh, like I said, we're going to dissect the Constitution of No Authority, which he writes in 1870. Um, and just in general, he argues that basically the Constitution has no legal bearing as a legal contract. Uh, it's written, we'll post a link to it in the show notes, and you can read it. Uh, it's very obvious that he's a lawyer. These are some legal arguments against the Constitution. But let's go ahead and break those down and get into it and get what this work is all about. So I think the most interesting question to start off with is do we think the constitution is actually a contract between the government and and the people um a lot of what he argues uh has its basis in contract law um you know if you didn't sign it it's not legal so that you know i don't know yes or no question or you could, you know, go on forever about it. Is the Constitution a contract? So, well, I guess I'll jump in. So prior to reading Spooner, I still probably would have said no. 
Um, however, what he provided here as a lawyer, clearly a very rich history and rich understanding of law, was some really good arguments, which I'm assuming you're going to get into at some point, Alan, um, regarding why, right, knowing how contracts work, why it is not a contract. Um, I guess some people would have made the argument under like the ideology of Jean-Jacques Rousseau that there is a social contract and the Constitution is kind of like the framing of that um, or more or less like an outline of that. But um, I don't know. It's hard for me to actually say what my thoughts were prior to reading Spooner because like now everything I'm thinking about are his arguments. So I'm going to – I guess I'll, I'll kind of pass off to Nick here. But no, prior to this I would have said it's still not a contract that's just – now even more so because he provided these very clear arguments what do you think nick yeah it's kind of interesting that we're asking this question right now because i just had a back and forth on youtube with one of our uh, watchers on a video we have about antonio gramsci and his theories of hegemony and talking about consent and what consent means and we were talking about implied consent and the argument there was do we consent to like a capitalist ideology even if we don't agree with it merely by living underneath it and my argument was while we don't like explicitly have to publicly state our consent that merely by you know buying a smartphone and using youtube and driving a car and buying gasoline and all the things that we do that we've implied our consent in this system but like obviously i'm not a lawyer and before like jared said reading spooner's work i would have never been articulate enough to um describe the legalese argument against the constitution as a contract i would have probably defaulted to more sort of sociological theory because that's what I do of like, well, when I was born, I never signed a document that said that I supported the constitution, et cetera. So we never had a chance to like explicitly consent to the document. So I would say no. Um, we obviously know that Spooner's opinion is no, but I wouldn't have been able to articulate it in any way that made any kind of sense uh, prior to reading his work for sure. Yeah, at best it's a socialization process that gets us to quote unquote agree with the contract, but and, and at worst it's a flat out indoctrination. Um, but yeah, like these arguments are are pretty clear here regarding voting and so on and so forth. But yeah, no, no is the answer. Right. I um I never thought of the Constitution as a contract uh but in this chapter of no treason spooner definitely articulates this point that he believes the constitution is a contract and should be explicit explicitly consented to um and you know one of his main points is the constitution only has authority with the folks who were alive 80 years prior to the writing of this in 1860-ish um and now all those folks are dead so they never left a time frame in the constitution uh they spoke a little bit about posterity um does the constitution have a sunset clause um is it is it meant to kind of govern for you know time eternal um you know most contracts do we, you know, you, you have to explicitly agree to or sign in order for, you know, them to be valid. You know, any, anytime, like if, if, if I, if you gave me a thousand dollars, Jared, and I didn't sign a contract and you took me to small claims court, the judge would ask you, well, where's the contract that he owes you a thousand dollars back? And if you said, well, I don't have it. The judge was most likely throw out the case. Correct. Tell me to pound sand. Yeah. But with the Constitution, it's these same judges saying, well, we don't need your explicit consent on this. You just have to abide by it. And, you know, you have a duty to obedience. 
And Nick, you talked about something earlier about being born in, you know, in the States. And well, that brings up a question of, you know, current times, you're, when you're turn 18, you're considered a legal adult, adult. So at what age would you have to consent to, you know, implicitly or explicitly consent to the Constitution? Like my seven-year-old son would have no idea what any of those words meant. So is he not bound by it until he's able to understand it? Is he not bound by it until he's 18 years old? So, I mean, those are my questions. Yeah, and Spooner talks about this, actually, and it's a good point to bring up in modern times. Like, people who become citizens of the United States do explicitly express their support for the U.S. Constitution. But if you're born in the United States, that never happens. You never have to do that. It's just assumed that based on your citizenship, you have basically consented to living under this document as a contract. Right, and I, and I swore an oath to it when I was in the military. Yeah. By merely having the good or bad fortune, I suppose, depending on your perspective, of being born here, which, of course, none of us had a choice. We weren't, like, you know, whispering in the stork's ear, like, drop me off here in, in, in Colorado or Massachusetts or Georgia or whatever. Like, none of us ha had any say-so in that. And then, like, again, through various socialization processes, it's just merely implied that this is just – this is the way the world works. This is where you are, and this is the way it's going to be. And then that ties back into, like I said, that J.J. Rousseau idea of the social contract that whether you like it or not, this is your fate. You are fated to follow these laws of the land. But you're never asked to sign. You're never – shoot, at this point, it's rare people have even read it. So again, that's the idea. It's just, it's implied. It's implied. So implicitly is, is I think the correct word here. And I have two points on that, that you just made me think of. The first is interestingly, like JJ Rousseau, when he's talking about the social contract, et cetera, he's talking about it in the sense of like an unspoken contract between people that live in a society, not like all of the people in society signing implicitly this document and living under this hard contract. That's one point. The other point is, because you mentioned that you did explicitly uh, sign to support the Constitution when you were in the military, it made me remember Jared and I also, as employees of a state institution, being instructors, have also signed documents where we have explicitly uh, expressed our consent and support of the Constitution. So all the three people doing this podcast actually have explicitly, unfortunately, signed saying that they support the Constitution. But does, but does that does that bind us forever? Yeah, what's like the it, term? I it, mean, our term of employment, again, working for a university or working for the United States military. I mean, obviously, those are state institutions. They're state-run. Perhaps we do have to sign away a little bit of, of, of... We have to sign in to our consent to operate under this document. But not everybody works at a university or in the military or even at, at like the local DMV. What about just the everyday citizens? Are they just by again being born here tied to this document? I mean, if you if you look at you know JJ Rousseau and the social contract, the answer would be yes. Okay, but bringing it back to Spooner, he would argue no because implicitly consenting to anything stands in the face of natural law and natural rights. Right. So you know. The implication of consenting to the social contract is you give up a little bit of your freedom for this state to protect you. Like this says this in the preamble of the Constitution, you know, protection, life, blah, blah, blah. But Spooner would argue that nobody can give up their natural rights 
under natural law. Like these are inalienable. You're you're born. These are your rights. You cannot give them away. So how can we, you know, going back to the original question of the pocket, like square, we're talking about the social contract and the majority of people living in America who've, you know, this implicit consent to just follow certain cultural and societal norms um, who probably, like you said, never read the constitution or have read it, but really have no understanding of it because this, you know, we could talk about the, yeah, the, the ninth original, grade the, civics classes right, long in the know, past yeah. or the originalist argument yeah. or whatever um, to, if, if we do have natural rights, how, how, under Spooner's view, like him saying we cannot give those up, can we then implicitly consent to a social contract where we actually give those up for, you know, group protection? And who would consent to those? Yeah, well, I mean, Spooner's argument is that you can't. There's nothing you could do that you could you can't give up natural rights, regardless of a contract you sign or anything. You can't give up natural rights. You That's can't even argument. give them up to nature itself, in Spooner's words. Mm-hmm. One thing that I thought about when I was reading this that I think is interesting is, like we've talked about, most people have never even read the Constitution. But, like, even let's say that you're you're 18, so we would consider you, like, of legal age, and you read the Constitution, and then you don't want to consent to it, you really don't have a choice. Because we have all of these barriers in place where, like, you can't even leave even if you wanted to, really. It's such a challenge that you really don't have a choice but to consent. It's like an, It's like an Apple iPod agreement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, if you want to use this thing, if you want to exist in the world, like, you're in, you whether you like it or not. You like sure. it or not. It's yeah. like South Park, like the, what is it, Sentai Pad, where they're all in the, have you watched that? Episode? No, I haven't seen that shit. Oh, so there's this episode, I think it's called The Human Sentai Pad. And when you, have you seen The Human Centipede, the movie? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's gross. So in this South Park episode, when you signed in the terms of agreement for Apple, you get put in a human centipede. So that like <laughs> by signing the terms of agreement, then they're all in centi- in this human centipede because they signed it. Yeah, it's hilarious. You got to watch it. Okay. Because it's like it. obviously no one read it. So they all sign it and then they end up in the centipede and there's nothing they can do because they signed the terms. Well, yeah, because nobody reads the terms and conditions. Yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, you turn 18 and you have to sign up for a selective service. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you don't, you're barred from a bunch of things, you know, don't quote me on this, but you know, renting cars or student loans and credit cards and things like that, just because you refuse to sign up for maybe in the future you're going to get unconstitutionally so an- drafted into an unconstitutional, unjust, most likely war. So that's a good – like obviously in Spooner's time that didn't exist. So would we argue today that you actually consent when you sign up for the selective service? I would say it, it, it almost in Spooner's time did exist because – his whole mindset on the Constitution changed during the buildup and during the Civil War. Um, and I believe when he saw folks being, um, you know, contracted and conscripted into the military in the North, I, you know, my personal view is if this, you know, if the state, and when I mean state, is the government has the ability to conscript you into the military to fight a war you don't believe in, you don't own anything about yourself. The state owns you. And I would like to think that Spooner kind of felt the same when he saw folks getting conscripted. And I think he would argue that forcible consent 
is probably worse than implied consent. Mm -hmm. Which is like, this just reminds me of the conversation I had on YouTube today about uh, Gramsci because he, he delineates specifically between consent and coercion. And forcible consent is you're coerced, right? That's no longer even consent. I don't think most people would probably argue, you know? Right. And, and, and Spooner talks about that a lot too. Like, you know, when he talks about, you know, this implicit consent the government thinks about, you know, with taxes or voting, well, taxes is compulsory, right? So if you don't pay, you know, the state has a monopoly on force. So they're going to come to you and you're going to be forced to pay in one way or the other. Um, voting. Well, the irony on tax taxation before you go to voting is that, like, even in Spooner's time, it wasn't nearly as, like, again, widespread or coercive as it actually eventually became in the 20th century, right? right? There's no IRS in Spooner's time, right? So it's even more so pronounced after Spooner is writing, which is very interesting to me because even as I'm going through this and I'm looking at his arguments against taxation being part of resent or, excuse me, part of consent. That this idea that merely because the state is taking things that it can then use against you, taking your resources, taking your money is the term he used, that it can then turn around and use against you, that does not equate to a consent. Right. And I think that's very interesting that he uses these like phrases like, well, when the man comes and knocks on your door and asks for his take, we can't even relate to that in 2019 because that's not how it goes down anymore. It's taken out of your paycheck. It's there's there's it's just done. The employer does it for or, you. You know, you're yeah. Will, you're Willie Nelson. You get caught years later mm -hmm. avoiding paying yeah. taxes. Yeah. But you know, Spooner has this quote basically saying, you know, how can you you know deny or defend yourself at the tip of a bayonet? And that's basically what it comes down to. You know, the state has a monopoly on force. You refuse to you refuse to pay taxes. You're going to be jailed, and if you don't vote, <clears throat> you're technically voting against yourself, because you know the majority of voting in this country is done by self defense, especially for you know underrepresented populations. So voting can't even be used as a question of whether it's you know by voting is you're somehow consenting to you know the federal government. Well, and it's not permanent. He says even here in one of the quotes that I think is interesting, he says, no one by voting can be said to pledge himself for any longer period than that for which he votes. He actually takes that argument further later on down the line and we'll, we'll probably dig into it a little bit more. Um, but I think that's interesting that even let's pretend that you are a voter and you're voting for either the congressional cycle or the presidential cycle or, or something very local, a city council, whatever it might be. He's even arguing that even if we use voting as some sort of like, again, implicit consent, that, that, that doesn't actually even qualify, that you're merely trying to preserve whatever you're, as Alan just said, like you're trying to, to, to preserve who you are and what you believe in and maybe against the oppressive state or the possibility of an oppressive state and he argues that even if we stretch that to count as consent it would only last for the term of whatever you voted for so if you voted for a president it would only last for those four years and that's it and it would only apply to the folks that voted for the person who won mm. exactly right mm -hmm. spooner explicitly says that if you voted for the loser of the election you have no obligation to consent to that person's rule 100 percent. yeah that's a, that's an excellent point that i had forgotten about you're right yeah, so he's saying many people argue that through the act of voting, we can consider that consent to live under this rule of government, the Constitution. But he says 
first off, one of his main arguments is that so few people vote. And he actually goes through the statistics of the time of how many people actually vote. So few people vote. And he also talks about the fact that women, black men, minors, etc., they all aren't even allowed to vote at the time. So the pool of potential voters is so small. In some we... states still now, just so we're clear. Right. Yeah. 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 For, for various. Yes. No. Yes. Then he goes on to say that, okay, even if we stretched it to say that voting was the qualifier, that it would only be for the term that someone voted for. And then Alan's point that it would only be for the people that won the election. So if you voted for someone that lost, you're off the hook. You haven't consented to anything. Yeah, that that's another thing that I was going to bring up. Because um, at the the time of this writing, it was, it was white men, mm-hmm. you know, most likely land-owning, uh, well-to-do white men. Not to talk about, you know, the, this is, you know, pre, during, post-Civil War. You know, we talk about the freed slaves. We talk about women. So, you know, we have this argument about is the Constitution or does the Constitution have any moral or legal authority over us? Does it have any legal or moral authority over folks of color or women who weren't even involved or thought of in the process when the Constitution was written? Women... Folks of color weren't even, uh, you know, anything in, in any you know any framer's mind back then when they were when they were writing. So this. by being excluded both socially and of course even in this contract, which it was pretty explicit in parts of the contract, which is interesting regarding his prior publication using um, that slavery was unconstitutional. I'd probably want to dig a little bit more into that, but this idea that it was. Yeah, that exclusion right there means the Constitution is no, not at all a can't even remotely be discussed as a contract for women or people of color, um, not even remotely, not even a thing. Right, and 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 talking about voting, voting is done by secret ballot, mm-hmm. um, and he brings that up. Like, how could something be valid if you know it's behind the scenes, secretly voted on? So my my thought process while reading that was like, well, then does that nullify? every institution that does secret valley like unions you know everything that this does you know put your name in a hat this person you know is elected so i was considered of that kind of like the coward's way out even in societies that are pseudo democratic we don't live in a democracy we'll get to an episode where we dig into why republican democracy do not necessarily equal the same things at some point we don't have time to like dig into the nuance now but it is kind of the coward's way out whether we're talking about a republic or a full-blown democracy because this idea is that, yes, you are voting in secret, which means then even results, we're relying on somebody in some sort of position of authority or power, um, even regarding like modern day the news, right? That's who reveals the results to us. We're trusting their accuracy in revealing these results, whereas in something like a direct democracy that we've talked about in like the revolution and ideology podcast, whether it was like Cheron, Mexico or the Zapatistas, we like have, you, you, we you have see that it, in Colorado. you see it, you can see yeah. who's voting for what you raise your hand or you announce your vote or whatever it might be. That's direct democracy. And I'm willing to stand behind whatever my vote is, whether it's behind a candidate or a policy. We know we can look around, we can see, we can research, we can see those things it's not necessarily the case as far as at least the federal government is concerned, although Alan's going to inform us a little bit about the state of Colorado regarding like the idea of direct democracy. Oh, I was just going to say – Or just I'll be, non-secretive I'll voting. be honest. Um, 
in the last six years, I voted for Nick Lee in every position <laughs> uh, from, 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 from city council to president. Son of a bitch. Why are you not running things yet, uh, Nick? But no, Colorado. It, Weird. One it, vote doesn't count. That's strange. I mean, this is an interesting conversation, you know, a topic to bring up, too, because, you know, like a lot going on with, you know, the abolishing the Electoral College should be mm-hmm. national popular vote. Um, and this could be like an entire other. Well, know, that was episode. actually one of the questions I wrote down when he's talking and he spends a lot of time in this this publication, right? Constitution of no authority. He spends a lot of time talking about voting and secretive voting. And one of the questions I had before he actually explained it later, later as I was reading it is when he's talking about secretive voting, is he talking about the individual like in the little booth and not having to ever take responsibility for their vote? Or is he also alluding to the federal electoral process that's tied to the electoral college? And those people also don't have to, although some of them do don't have to reveal who they are i think think what he's talking about he's saying that since it's secretive from a legal argument we can't count that as a public explicit consent to the contract because it's done in secret Um, i want to direct our listeners to uh an essay that i love it's by jean paul sartre and it's called elections a trap for fools We'll post a link to it in the show notes, but he talks about this extensively, the fact that voting is done in secret and how that basically delegitimizes the quote-unquote democratic system uh, in the United States and anywhere where this happens. Uh, It's super interesting. I don't want to go into it in detail. I'll just direct our listeners to read that. It's just a few pages, Uh, but yeah, he talks about this extensively, the secret ballot and how that invalidates a lot of things. What's interesting, you know, talking about this now is on the right over here, I was listening to uh, some talk radio on on uh, the radio in my car, and they were talking to his name Peter Baca. He made headlines. He was in Colorado. He was one of like the delegates or super delegates. You know, the question now is like, do the delegates have any? You know, implicit or explicit explicit reason to vote for the presidential candidate that the state, you know, by popular vote has. Um, So the way I read uh, Spooner's argument here is I read it as each individual vote being secret doesn't count. Um, And what I find interesting about that is there's been a lot of polls coming out lately talking about, how Trump's support's been down and how, uh, you know, Biden's been dropping and Sanders and uh, Warren have come up. But like my thought process and my question about this is I think we've come to a point in Trump's presidency and as a country that even if you were now, no, granted, if you're a diehard like Trumper, you have no problem with your name and face out there. But my question about these polls, not just them being just like a single snapshot in time, is if you had voted for Trump and are going to vote for him again, would you put your name on that? Or would you just answer yes or no and try to remain, you know, secret? I mean, that's interesting. I mean, even locally, speaking locally, I've seen a whole bunch of, of – at one point I saw a lot of bumper stickers and now I'm not seeing a whole lot of bumper stickers. I don't know that that's like the gauge. I don't think that that, that reaches like Pew Research Poll like level of like accuracy or anything along those lines. That's not what I'm insinuating. But it is interesting that once the process was over, 
um, and things that have now taken place over the last couple of years have taken place, I've now seen a lot less like outward direct uh, electoral support for the current administration. That is very clear, at least locally here um, in 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 our community. And I want to apologize for using the T word. I, I didn't come into this. <laughs> I'll bleep it out. Don't worry. You're going to bleep out the T word? It would be funny if you just bleeped that out. (laughs) So I want to wrap this back, though, to Spooner's argument. He would say that even if we voted in public, people that voted for Trump, only they would be bound to the constitutional contract since he won the election. That everyone else that voted for people who lost clearly would not be bound to that contract. But he also makes an argument that Elections are majority rule. Um, he, he states in in one of the you know internal paragraphs is, well, if you know majority of folks vote for this one candidate, all that really becomes is the same relationship between men and men and masters and slaves. And then he goes on to talk about how that would cement this constant conflict in society. Which I really I highlighted and thought was really interesting because, you know, there's many reasons I, I feel that Spooner was ahead of his time. This being one of them, talking about, you know, the majority rule, does like might make right or does right make might? If the majority of folks vote for somebody, does that give them some kind of, you know, legal or moral authority over the weaker minority group? And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking about, you know, every type of inequality this country has. Um, and, I, you know, it, it was just really interesting to think, you know, here, here's a guy in the 19th century who's really just, you know, kind of fucking going off about how he dislikes the Constitution. But he's hitting all these points that are like, holy shit, like these are. Your conversations we're having today. Yeah, these are clear points. Like, just because I vote does not mean you get con- my consent for my whole life. Just because you take my taxes 10 times out of 10, usually against my consent, and then use those taxes however you see fit, that doesn't mean, like, this is a contract. And I clearly haven't signed anything. I just happen to have either the good or the bad fortune of being born here. Like, these are all points that, again, are, like, wildly relevant. And moreover... When a candidate or a bill or whatever it is passes that is not necessarily something I have interested in, I've signed nothing. I don't necessarily have to be obligated to this. I have no like I have no vested interest in that, whatever it might be, whatever this thing might be. Right, and he brings that up in a in a paragraph because it states in the Constitution that basically on the floor of Congress, uh, representatives and senators like can't be held accountable to anything they say. Right. So like if you can't be held accountable to, you know, what you're proposing or what you're espousing, then who are you ever held accountable to? That's that is I'm looking for it right now. That's one of my favorite parts that you just touched upon. He flat out does say that that the fact that we can't um, maybe it's here. Uh, Let's see. It is no exaggeration, but a literal truth to say that by the Constitution, not as I interpret it, 
but as it is interpreted by those who pretend to administer it, the properties, liberties, and lives of the entire people of the United States are surrendered undeservedly into the hands of men who it is provided by the Constitution itself shall never be questioned as to any disposal they make of them. Thus, the Constitution, Article 1, Section 6, provides that for any speech or debate or vote in either house, they, the senators and representatives, shall not be questioned in any other place. The whole lawmaking power is given to these senators and representatives when acting by a two-thirds vote, and this provision protects them from all responsibility for the laws they make. Yeah, it goes to any time uh, you know, somebody in Congress wants to make like an inflammatory statement— they do it in the chamber of Congress because they're not held responsible to anything they say. Yeah, his huge argument that he spends a lot of this document talking about is the fact that if our representatives were actually our agents that were acting on our behalf, then they would be individually responsible for their behaviors and their actions and accountable for those actions. But very clearly, members of Congress, etc., the representatives that we elect are not individually accountable for those actions. Like Alan just said, anytime they want to make some ridiculously inflammatory statement, they just do it on the floor of Congress, and then they are legally basically not able to be held accountable, which I think is a super interesting argument. You can't even do that in a, a regular place of employment. Like if you're if, if you're working at like the local Chipotle and you just want to stand there and like make whatever inflammatory statement you want to make about like making burritos or burrito bowls or what your boss is putting, you would probably get fired on the spot if it was an inflammatory enough statement. These people, this is their job. This is what they've been quote unquote chosen to do. And, and they can make whatever statement they want and the law protects them. I mean, that right there is a, a clear indictment against the validity of this, this this contract. And like you said before, Spooner's argument hinges, one of them hinges on the fact that they can never be questioned, basically. Once they're elected into office, you can essentially never question any of their actions or any of their behaviors or anything that they say because after the election, basically, they are absolved of all responsibility. Right. And I spent a lot of time in D.C. lobbying these folks and... It's it's all lip service. They never give a straight answer. They'll lie. You know, you could have a video of what they said and repeat it verbatim back to them, and they'll say, "Oh, I didn't say it." And you know, like the, our only recourse is elections, right? You know, and what's what's Congress's approval rating? Something like I don't know, eight eight percent. You know, there's like shit eighties bands that are have a higher, you know. <laughs> Uh, approval rating that but each individual congressperson's reelectability percentage is like 99 percent you know so talk about not being able to see the forest through the trees it, it's a very interesting thing and I, I don't even want to say time because i feel like this goes back to you know like spooner we're talking about the mid-1800s is, you know, a lot of folks want to see and believe what they want to see and believe. And when these folks, you know, these Congress people show up and do some bullshit town hall and give lip service and then go back to D.C. and do whatever the fuck they want. Um, but now I've been there and I've looked these people in the face and, you know, they've told me one thing and then the next day they've, they've done the opposite. So, you know, if, if you truly believe that these representatives have your best interest in mind, you really need to fucking think about what your best interests are because they do, they literally do not 
give a shit about you. Yeah, the whole idea of that they represent us when they're in office is completely absurd. But we've all been conditioned, to use Jared's term earlier, to believe that merely by voting for this representative that they will then go to Congress uh, or wherever. It could be city council or whatever. And they have our best interests in mind and they will represent us in that position. Completely absurd. Well, and that ties in to arguments that even Spooner doesn't make, like, again, the electoral process and how uh, campaign funding works and all of those other types of things that, that, that there have been people that have been arguing against for, you know, at least, him, at least since Spooner's time. But, I mean, I bring it down like this. When I'm talking about this in a classroom and I am challenging the notion of democracy in the United States, the first thing I will say is, like, who do you think Senator X has more interest in supporting through policy? Little John Doe in whatever, Macon, Georgia, or ExxonMobil who gave Senator X $1 million in campaign funds. Who is that person really working for? Like, let's not be, let's not be like naive here. We already know how this is going down. And that's what I think is great about Spooner, right? We talked, you know, I mentioned earlier about him being ahead of his time. I mean, the further you read on, um, he basically says, all power lies in money. And if you have enough money, you could build a big enough army to force folks to do what you want. And then the most amazing thing to me about this chapter, you know, whatever of he was supposed to release chapters two or, you know, two through five and they never happened and they've been lost to history. Even Benjamin Tucker, who bought his estate couldn't find them but the most amazing thing to me and i actually thought about you jared when i was rereading this if anybody was to get worked up about hearing the name rothschild (laughs) in a conversation i felt like it was you and here he is back in the 19th century talking about what 140 plus years ago talking about how the rothschilds and their money basically run the world that's funny because i actually like i made a note while i was reading this about who he talks about these elite people who run society um yeah i have it i found it right here in my notes he says here's a quote with so-called civilized peoples the authority lies with those who have the most money because soldiers in any requisite number and other instrumentalities of war in any requisite amount can always be had for money and then he goes on to call out the Rothschilds by name multiple times throughout the following pages, which I think is hilarious. It's super amazing, right? At a time where nobody was naming names, right? Nobody was naming bankers and big money folks. These are people that we still talk about in 2019, mm-hmm. the Rothschilds. We still talk about them in 2019. Right. I'm actually oh, super yeah. surprised because I think about this a lot that there hasn't been like a documentary or something about them because like well, cause they no own, they own everything. I think that's what they just own everything. Like we could do a, whatever, Jimmy Kimmel Man on the Street quiz and like no one would know who the Rothschilds are, but they are so influential in literally running the entire world. Okay, I do want to rewind for a second though because I think it was Alan that brought up the slave-master relationship thing. Mm-hmm. And I had a note here that was super interesting to me, and I took the time to make a note. 
Um, so the reason this is interesting to me is because one of my favorite quotes ever comes from Herbert Marcuse in One Dimensional Man when he talks about elections and slaves, etc. Like Alan just picked it up. It's literally sitting on my desk right now. Uh, One Dimensional Man is. If you've never read that, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, we need an episode on it. It's like it is, it is a badass. It, it, it was bad, written in yeah. 1964 by Marcuse, and he basically just fillets capitalism. Uh, he's a member of the Frankfurt School, but that's enough for that now. We'll get to that later. But So this is what I'm going to do because I read this quote by – Spooner, and then it immediately reminded me of my favorite quote from Marcuse. So I'm going to read them both back to back, and then you're going to see the similarities between the two. So first, this is Spooner. He says, A man is nonetheless a slave because he is allowed to choose a new master once in a term of years. Now this is Marcuse. Free elections of masters does not abolish the masters or the slaves. And I read that quote by Spooner that quote by Spooner and then immediately in my mind popped in the quote by Marcuse and I'm thinking like there's absolutely no way that Marcuse ever read Spooner but they are so similar that it was just astonishing to me and so his point is that the master-slave relationship is secured by the election but just because you're electing your master doesn't prevent them from being your master which I think is hugely powerful Right, yeah, just because you're choosing who's going to whip you doesn't make it any less painful. Exactly. Yeah, the master-slave metaphor is good. I like the robber one, too, that he uses. Oh, the, the highwayman? Yeah, the highwayman. The highwayman is the... probably my favorite paragraph <laughs> yeah, he in, says in the, the entire... The fact is that the government, like a highwayman, says to a man, your money or your life. And many, if not most, taxes are paid under the compulsion of that threat. So that right there, like, I mean, obviously Alan likes this this section right here. But that's even how taxes are paid. Taxes are not a sign of consent. Taxes are basically, well, we're given a choice. A choice, your money or your life. Now, is he exaggerating a little bit that anyone that didn't pay taxes was like executed or killed or whatever? But no, prison is a thing, right? Jail time is a thing. Or in certain cases, at least enough litigation can ruin your I mean, ability to make a living Yeah, the end, the end of your life is objective, right? You know, having a family, going to prison, that's the end of your life. But... If you continue on with that paragraph, my favorite part is when he starts getting a little sarcastic where he's like, oh, at least the highwayman doesn't follow you the fuck around under the guise of having to protect you and needing more money from you and watching your every step. And in that entire paragraph, he never mentions the government. He just continuously talks about the highway robber who jumps from the side of the road. But when you read it, you're like, oh, shit, like, I get that. Yeah, you like, know? if a robber comes to get me, he takes my shit and he leaves. The government takes my shit it's and safe. then sticks around and keeps taking my shit. Every and year. He, and he says, he, <laughs> and he, yeah. and he puts the word protection in quotes. He's like, the government excuses this because they're claiming that they protect me. He does not keep protecting you by commanding you to bow down and serve him. He then goes on to call the, the government. He says, the proceeding of those robbers and murderers who call themselves the government are already the opposite of single highwaymen. And so he basically he's saying they're all robbers or murderers, but it is the government that is like the worst of the bunch. And he doesn't use this term, but it's basically like the mafia, right? Like you have to pay <laughs> I was just gonna for say us that, to yeah. protect you. And then you're like, well, who are you protecting me against? Well, you're protecting – we're protecting you against us. Yeah. So you have to pay for that. <laughs> I, mean, I, was, I was just going to say, having grown up in New Jersey, you know, and – split time in new york and seen all these you know fictional movies and then you know you know non-fictional documentaries and book it's the same thing it's 
you know, the mafia coming to your store and saying, Hey Nick, uh, I'm going to need $50 a week for protection. Well, who are you protecting me against? Well, either don't worry about it or don't give me 50 bucks. And then you don't have to be around too much longer. Right. You'll find out. It's right. the, yeah. It's basically the same thing, you know, which when you boil it down to that kind of level, you know, of, of narrative, I, I feel like, people understand you know and the, my favorite thing about spooner is you know even, even writing this in the mid 1800s it's not a hard read oh yeah for sure you know there's no big words there's no super multi-syllable words you know like it, it's 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 very easy to understand he's super repetitive in a lot of what he says because i think he was you know super animated and just wanted to get his point across but it's a super easy read. Yeah, you don't need any kind of like legal background or anything. Like you read it just as like a normal person. You're like you find yourself saying over and over like, "Yeah, that's a great point." I mean, yeah, o- yeah. O- only if in today's time could we, you know, be an autodidact and study and become a lawyer, which I always thought was interesting because, you know, let's go back to, uh, or let me bring up everybody's favorite libertarian son. And I mean Rand Paul. So Rand Paul is an eye surgeon, but Rand Paul never graduated from his undergraduate degree and then went to medical school and then was able to perform surgery on people's eyes. I did not know that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is another, you know, conversation about who we put on pedestals and the water diamond paradox and blah, blah, blah. But... You know, we live in a time now where if, say, Alan Pitts was writing something similar to what Lysander Spooner is writing, I'd be fucking thrown away as a wacko, mm-hmm. right? Because I don't have a law degree. But back then, people were listening, even though he was lost to history and lost to time. Back then, it didn't matter, you know? And this is a cultural and societal argument that we could have about who's more important or why certain people seem more important. hundred percent. I want to go back to a point that Jared made earlier about Spooner's writing about taxation. And he literally uses the example of like the tax man knocks on your door and collects your taxes. And in fact, we did an episode on Thomas Paine where we talked about his role as a tax collector. When he lived in England, he literally was, went door to door and collected. Was it taxes. a negative episode on Thomas Paine? No, we're Thomas Paine fans. Okay. Yeah. Thomas Paine is my favorite founder yeah 100%. i don't i hate the word founder i do too i want to light that word on fire i, I like do too but i but i it say sounds it. like we're all some sort of like stupid heaven gate heaven's yeah. gate cult like founding the founding father. fathers like yeah. i'm gonna go worship like i might as well read like i don't know some sort of religious text but i but I, 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 say, like, I say i no say founder extent. for the sole reason to throw it in the face of like jeffersonians mm-hmm. or folks we've already yeah. we're picking apart the washingtons the adams the jeffersons right. we do not like these Payne's a favorable pain pain's yeah. always been he's always been my guy but that's yeah. the point that's what we even talked about in the episode go back and listen to it if you're all are listening right now wanted... but yeah like pain is that's the reason why nobody liked pain that's why adams hated pain that's why jefferson and pain only kind of got along at some sometimes but other times did not right like that's why pain ends up in france because he thinks they're going to be more radical uh than the wipes that start this country so yeah like that's that we we are big we are there's, big pain there's fans. a good obscure conspiracy theory that he authored the constitution 
That would be kind of shocking given how much he critiqued the English Constitution in common sense because he hates the... Sure. And so our Constitution is straight jacked from the English Constitution in many ways. Right. And he critiques the hell out of the English Constitution in common sense. So it'd be interesting that he took parts of well, the like English the, Constitution. The, the English Constitution was some semi-written but mostly like lore and spoken because still to this day the American Constitution is the oldest written Constitution in the world. Depends on how far, like, well, we could debate that. That's a history yeah. thing. Like, I, I technically, Magna Carta I just, was written in 1215. That's not a constitution. I just but love, it starts, I, it starts, it starts. I just love Thomas Paine. Yeah. So I'm going to defend my man. You know. <laughs> we like Thomas Paine too. Yeah, you don't have to defend him because we did. Yeah, we're, he's you're like here. the only guy we like from this era. It's like not the only guy. Yeah. You're, you're same, here. same. He's not like yeah. the only guy, but like, we like, the, of the people that we'd be considered architects. Guy. Like, yeah, we like Benjamin Banneker. We like these other guys. And he got fucked. Benjamin Banneker? No, no, no. Oh. Thomas Paine. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Benjamin yeah. Banneker did too, but yes. Yeah. Okay. That's what Americans do. <laughs> we, we use people and then yeah. fucking throw them away. Weird. Okay, back to my point, which was, in Spooner's time, the tax man literally knocked on your door and collected taxes, but Jared was talking about earlier how, like, that doesn't exist anymore. The IRS didn't exist in Spooner's time. Now we literally never see a human being that collects our taxes. We file our taxes online most of us or we have an accountant that does it for us and it goes to some computer system somewhere and then we pay that money out of our account or the government literally takes it out of our account in fact it reminds me of a meme that i saw that was like you have to calculate the taxes that you owe and the government knows exactly how much you owe but then they're like you need to calculate how much you owe and then pay it to us and if you pay the wrong amount you get sent to prison and then you're like well can you tell me the amount and they're like oh no of course not you have to figure it out for yourself but what that reminds me of is like i mean i mean that's math in every grade in school though right? yeah <laughs> it reminds me of kind of like foucault's concept that he borrows from jeremy bentham of the panopticon that like the irs at this point which is hugely different than Spooner's Day, is like sitting in the middle of the Panopticon watching all of us, but we have no idea who they are. They're just anonymous people somewhere that are just taking our money. And it's completely ridiculous. And for us to be able to consider that as like we've consented to the Constitution because we went online and clicked a couple of buttons, like it's even more absurd than in Spooner's Day. Under threat of either imprisonment or fines or collections or even in like low stakes cases not being able to go to college, right? You can't have FAFSA, for example, unless you file your taxes. 100%. Right. So those – but that's all coercion. That's a threat. That's not a contract. That's a threat. Yeah. Yeah. Um. No, I agree. And what I always, you know, taxes are has always been like an interesting argument that I've always had with myself. Um, because like one aspect, I always felt like, yeah, you know, I'm co- coerced to pay taxes because if I don't, you know, there's that threat of force, be it imprisonment, putting a lien on my house, car, whatever. Fines, interest. Fines, yeah. yeah, being audited, things like that. Um, But then, you know, I always laugh when I hear folks during, you know, tax season come like February to April that are like, oh, I got $8,000 back. And it's like, that was your money to start with. Like, they didn't give you anything back <laughs> right. as a gift. Yeah, they were taking right? too much out every and, week or and, every month or whatever it was. Right. And on that yeah. same vein is who would pay taxes if if we changed it to if they didn't just automatically come out of your paycheck every month Mm -hmm. but once a year you had to write a check 
to the government of what you owed, who would actually pay that? Because I'm a firm believer in all aspects of, you know, politics, electoral politics, social movements. Money is a huge motivating factor. So, Jared, if you had to sit down, say, come January and write a check for, I don't know, $9,500, how would you feel about paying taxes? I'd feel even saltier than I already do. Exactly. I'm pretty damn salty about it. But even – but that that lump sum right then, or at least at, in my socioeconomic position, I get that maybe there are people out that don't get – probably not our listeners – but there are people that probably can write that check and not feel any certain way about it. But I would definitely. Are feel you calling it. the listeners poor? Is that what you're doing? I don't know. I, I'm I, assuming yeah. there's no billionaires out there. Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming. And, hey, yeah. if there are billionaires out there, yeah, we could um, use to visit our Patreon page. Yeah. No, and I feel and Elon I feel, Musk is listening, and I feel right. the same way. Like I, I, I am happy to pay taxes. You know, this whole conversation is based on, you know, the Constitution having no authority, and, but I'm happy to pay taxes in order. For that money to go to help somebody in need. Mm -hmm. Would I rather just do that on my own? Yes. And I still do that on my own. But but that's the point. Like so so we don't even have a say so where that money is oh, being directed. Yeah, Most no of way. us can, if you're listening at home, you can pull up a pie chart. How your federal money, like your state money is different, but like how your assume, federal money. Yeah is being spent. And there'll be a pie chart and all the pie charts are different because they're all trying to tell you a different story. But let's pretend we're looking at the most general pie, pie chart. 25, 50% is being spent on DOD. Now for someone like myself who finds, again, consistent imperial warfare around the world wildly appalling, that pisses me off to no end that 50 cents of every one of my dollars is going to spread Americana to some place that never asked for it. That now this is an argument what, you don't have to make with me. what i want to pay to, now if my taxes i could say hey irs take my money and funnel it directly towards medicaid or uh school grants or something like that then i probably would be happy yeah. to pay taxes yeah. i think i have a theory that like the further it's not my theory like i made it up but like the further things get away from us the least likely we are to like support them so like to your thing, if at one time every year I had to sit down and figure out how much taxes I wanted to voluntarily pay, it would be like, yes, I use roads in my city, so I will fund them and like all of these things. But like, by the time we have to like funding the federal government, no one would fund that. No, like, but, yeah. But if you sat down that one time a year and it was like 10 grand, you know, you'd be like, oh, I use roads and maybe I, I'd call the cops if I'm scared my or kid went to or, public yeah. education yeah. but you'd also be like where the fuck did the other $8,000 mm -hmm. come from but even in other places they get more like a benefit I'd like to be able to in Canada just walk to a doctor because I know at least my taxes paid for that you can't even oh, do sure. that here, right like that you know we live in Colorado which has like some of the worst roads in the country so where <laughs> do our taxes go they I don't, don't know they don't go to <laughs> To fix our roads, it's a obviously. Weak conspiracy here. But no, no, seriously, it's it, you know, <laughs> like we pay taxes under threat of violence, correct? Right, and it's been that way since the jump. Um, I don't mind having to pay taxes for certain aspects, right? I want our children to be able to go to free school. I would love everybody to have free health care. Um, I want fucking libraries, you know, roads. I want these things. But I would really like a breakdown 
of of where they go. I mean, I get what you're saying, Jared, because they, they come shouldn't up, go to a senator excess pension for the rest of his it, life. You know, and it's funny. Look, I don't. I don't, okay, I don't think they directly do right. So if you get a ticket in Colorado Springs, and you go to say you had a hundred fifty dollar speeding ticket or whatever, and you go to pay it, and you ask the lady you're paying behind the desk, where does this go? She goes, I have no idea. And you go, does it go to the cop who gave me the ticket? She goes, no, because it doesn't. It just gets put in this fund that gets appropriated, you know, a thousand different ways. And, but, and, like, the argument can be made that, like, some portion of that, like, whether it's, like, a fraction of a penny goes to that police officer. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, in the long – that's what I was getting at. Like, in the long run, the argument is, yeah, no matter what, it's going to that, that cop or it's going to fucking Mitch McConnell, you know, or it's going to fucking Trump's border wall or some shit that I would rather not be paying for. They should sell, like – you know how, like, if you, like – like, if you buy – like you invest in some nonprofit that built a building and they give you like a brick in your name on the border wall. They should have everyone's name, every U.S. citizen. That's like this one fraction of this wall was paid for by blah, blah, blah. I don't want my name on that. No, well, yeah, I, that's I, the whole point. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what goes back to what I was saying earlier is if we had open voting, right, if it wasn't secret ballot voting. Right. Who would actually stand in a line? And there'd be people for yeah. sure. But there'd also be people that wouldn't stand in line and raise their hand and go, well, I'm going to vote for Trump. There'd yeah. be people that wouldn't stand in line and raise their hand and said, I'm going to vote for Warren. I mean, it works on both sides. You know, the the secret part of it is what like really frames American Republican politics as an act of true cowardice. Yeah. In my- and, and honestly, I don't really mind the secret. Really, I, I see it. it as just wildly, pro- just like Spooner. Maybe I'm clouded. No, by no, my, uh... I, no. I get that. My thing is, and I think this is just because what I've been thinking recently is just like I just want people to vote. I want more people to vote. All right. So can the three of us all right now? We're going to post on all of our social media who we vote for. Yes. All right. I've never had any issue telling anybody who I voted for. Like I said, last six really, elections. Yeah. We'd have to get Nicholas back to the fact that, that Jared might not be voting. Like, well, because vote, voting that. at all is perpetuation of a system that you don't necessarily uh, want to support. If Spooner was here, he'd give you a big hug. Uh, <laughs> Foucault would not, apparently. I did, we just found that yeah. out about him. He uh, he did think not voting was pretty I think another episode we talk about is Foucault's boomerang. That's a good episode. Here's the problem, though, which is, like, I'm going to butcher this, like, paraphrasing, but... The argument that really convinced me to vote was that not voting is such like a privileged act because all of the three of us sitting at this table are white males that like Trump's Trump's presidency is an example. It's had such a detrimental effect on like just as one example, the trans population that for all of us to sit here and say we're not going to vote and we're not going to participate is such like a cop out that just this like it takes 10 minutes literally to check the box that we have a responsibility to do that to protect the marginalized population. No, exactly. And I think about that a lot. Right. Like I'm a straight white dude. Yeah. And what I try to do is use my privilege to uplift voices of people of color 100%. and folks who are in marginalized populations. So to say, like, I'm not going to vote, to me, that's almost like a slap in the face to all these people of color that have just worked badass up until now. Um, and then Jared's giving me this look. But... <laughs> No, the, you know, it's the truth. Like, white people are privileged, but we have to be able to use our privilege 
in a way that uplifts non-white people. And I think if we abstain from voting, that's just like spitting in the face of the system that folks of color have toiled and bled and died for for you know a hundred plus years and it's super easy as like a white male to say like well i'm just not gonna vote and then no matter what happens in the election exactly it has zero impact on yeah fuck trump right now but how how, i'm the bad guy no seriously like fuck trump but like how has him being president affected me or you nick like it has zero percent zero percent no it has not adversely affected any of us it is adversely affected obviously anyone that was studying here any young people of any sort of latin american heritage that has been studying here that was a dreamer it has definitely affected the trans community it has definitely affected the african-american community community so everybody affected everybody who's not a straight white person everyone who's not a straight white so it's definitely adversely affected them but is it like to the point like we're like perpetuating the system and allowing a another four years of that because that's what will happen or another four years of slightly less bad like is that no. i guess that's the question i'm asking because here's well, what yes. we're doing what if we're doing in myth is person seeking health care then slightly less bad is much better than what yeah. we're doing in myth is america though is having an engagement where again this this current executive and his administration I must stress are not like like some sort of end all be all of badness or whatever. They're actually merely a symptom of everything America is, was, and will be. So any sort of engagement with perpetuating this trajectory is wildly problematic. No, yeah, dude, I'm not disagreeing with you, but what I'm saying from like an on the ground, you know, like right, the immediacy of it. Meet people where they are. I had a, I have a really good friend who works for the Ruckus Society, and she always says, speak with your feet, right? Like, speak with what you know, right? So the people that I meet, trans folks, folks of color, there's things that this administration is doing that, like, literally affects these people's lives, right? Like, folks in the military who are trans who are getting booted, folks of color who are getting deported, just because, you know, as of yesterday, they're trying to revoke birthright citizenship. So I guess what I'm trying to say is by, by again, perpetuating the system in any way, and I'm not necessarily saying I won't vote. I, I did vote, and I've probably voted in every federal election for the last, whatever, 12 odd you years. You voted for Trump, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely not. I, I'll, I'm, I have no problem. There's no secret ballot here. I voted yeah. for Jill Stein, Joe. So that's that's how that went two years ago or whatever it was. Um Anyway, back to the story, like any sort of, again, engagement with the system, a system that is predicated on subjugation, inequity, competition, haves and have-nots will merely find new ones. So I guess what I'm saying is every time we include, when we're inclusive, somebody else, that means somebody else must be excluded because we cannot include everybody in this both political and economic system. It's not built. But how do we ch- how do we change that system, right? How do we change I don't know that, that system? It's through voting because voting perpetuates the system. We're never going to change the system through voting. I have to assume that like most of us probably agree on that. However, if we can temporarily minimize the negative impacts on marginalized comp communities then we should do that which is why i By still voting. kind of vote sometimes too that's why i'm saying i'm not sure i'm gonna vote or not next like like I, you're making you're good you're making answer. good yeah. arguments i'm yeah. not gonna <laughs> argue with you in, in, in my argument is, is you based on and I, i'm a firm believer that change happens from the bottom up my argument is based on like voting for fucking city council and school board and things like that like yeah at the federal level like what's that really gonna you know, effect unless you're out there busting your ass and organizing people. But 
to you know to sit there and say like yeah you know this excludes people and blah blah but how do we how do we change that so i guess like, that's, people that's have been voting question. for two and a half centuries just in the united states do we still have racism yes misogyny yes socioeconomic inequality yes are we still engaged in wars all around the planet for reasons that are unbeknownst to anybody for yeah right but i would argue the way to change this is by organizing people more voting and voting how how many i mean are you advocating for like the overthrow because i mean if you want to overthrow the united states government like i'd throw down with that like <laughs> yeah yesterday but what but what i'm saying is if we want to talk about like nonviolent, you know revolution nonviolent change we push people who we believe in who believe in people and we vote them into office. So we recently just recorded an episode about like the build up to the, even the U.S. War for Independence, and the most effective tactic, and Nick and I at least agreed on it. Maybe you 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 would as well. Was introduced by the Daughters of Liberty, not the Sons of Liberty. They were drunk idiots that set things on fire. The Daughters of Liberty. It's this simple: non-consumption, non-participation, boycott, and that got England's attention more than anything. Okay, boycott. Back then? Back then, in 1774, yeah. 5, 6, all of that. Yep, yeah, easy peasy back then, right? Like, but what, I'm what, talking what, even like even if you would boycott the political system as well, not just like your corporate, okay, our, our how corporate okay, overlords. So but I'm just saying. Boycotting like, the, the general presidential election as an example, how many people would you think you need to boycott? Well, I, well, that's the problem. To make a change. Here's the paradox. Spooner already argues that most of us don't vote already, so we're boycotting right. de facto. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. Like, they're, yeah, they're, <laughs> we're not trying to boycott. It's right. Just like, they're, I, they're, I got, they're, I've got to watch so Stranger Things. They're agreed at what? 130 million, right? Voted in 20... You might be right. I don't remember. I know so, uh, what's I mean, her name got like 48, 49. I, I, pay attention, yeah. I pay attention a lot to like what the right's doing because of my family. Um and I remember Rush Limbaugh was calling for, or Mark Levin was calling for a boycott of, I think it was Chevron, which was owned by Venezuela, who, when he was alive, what's his name? Namagara, the, the guy before him, Chavez, right? Hugo Chavez. Yeah. And he broke it down where it was almost like, there's X amount of gas stations in this country. If like someone like, 50 people didn't use them that day it would be effect they would lose like millions of dollars but that that's an organizing effort on a fucking ridiculous scale like unprecedented it's never gonna happen so jerry and i have actually talked about this a lot about how the most powerful thing throughout history has been like the general strike but that it's like absolutely impossible nowadays to get no because critical mass corporations have like a million employees Yep. Back when they were doing general strike, they'd have like sixty thousand and like fifteen thousand be like, Oh fuck you. And that's it's like fine. oh shit, that affects and I'm everything. Okay with that. And then we should all vote and buy Apple products and Fords and Toyotas and we can just carry on with this fun game for uh, well until we use up the entire planet, I guess is what I'm saying. But like that's the question. Do we alleviate minor issues now? Which I do believe it. I'm not actually arguing against you. I probably will vote because I don't want uh, anybody in the LGBTQ plus community to suffer. I don't want African Americans to continue to get shot in the streets. I don't want children in concentration camps along the border. I want none of those things. So I will vote for that purpose. But as a devil's advocate, I have to also throw out there: all that does is continue to perpetuate a oh, failed system. No, I yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, but I have yet to find a nonviolent way 
that makes a difference. Right. Yeah, if, if, yep. if you want to talk about how to throw a coup and violently overthrow the United States government, talk about that all day. But nonviolently, it starts at the bottom and it starts with voting. And I've got a little bit feeling of Jared going into like him being a, you know, his dictatorship, <laughs> religious world leader, you know. Yeah. What do you vote for you? Is that good? I, think, I, don't know. Is, I don't know that I want that kind of responsibility. I'm trying, that, to, I'm trying to Netflix and chill was and watch basketball was games. Was that your campaign pitch right there? I'm trying yeah, to Netflix and chill and watch basketball games. No, honestly, games? like, non-violent, nonviolently, I have, I have, outside of organizing people, you know, on the streets, meeting mm-hmm. meeting where they are and getting to vote for somebody. Like, look at the squad, right? Like, so the organization I work for... I remember finding AOC, speaking with her, speaking with her campaign, endorsing her. Rashida Tlaib, same. Ilhan Omar, same. Ayanna Presley, same. And I've met these women, you know, five or six times, and they're fucking rock stars. So going back to what I said earlier about how these politicians don't give a shit about you, that's true. But these four women give a shit about you. For how long? I don't really know. Yeah, I mean, we'll find out. I don't like know. I said, and I don't... I, I've been watching the system pull people in, chew them up, and spit them out, and it's... I mean, AOC's gotten shit because once you're like a freshman congressperson, you spend the majority of your day just calling donors, and she refuses mm-hmm. to do that. You know, and she sits in on committees she's not a part of because she just wants to understand what's going on. So those four, the squad, you know... What does that mean for my contract? How am I contracted through this United States? To kind of get back to like the original topic. We've definitely gone way into more of the way off. revolution yeah. and ideology side of this. I don't think me. I don't think What does this mean well, for the contract then? Well, so like Nick said earlier, like you signed a contract. So AOC is not from my district, not even from my state, right? right like right. but 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 I dig what she's about. Yeah. Like and so does that now draw and I so I can't even vote like I have no say in 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 what she's about but like does that make does that reapply the social contract now not excuse me not social contract the constitutional contract based on what Spooner has kind of no why would it yeah well she, she's, so she's just somebody that you know you appreciate being in Congress and you'd like to see more of but like we said earlier you know like me having been in the military I swore an oath of the Constitution. Does that is there like a sunset clause on that? Like, does that end? You're not you're not in now. When I got out, yeah. You know, a lot of times I say, you know, in defense or an attack of like Trump's administration is like I swore an oath and like you're fucking going the wrong way. And you guys, like you said, you know, signed an oath. As you know, being professors at a college, which is weird because that's like a recent thing. We didn't start. I know by signing when, that thing. that when, just started happening. When Nick what, started two years saying ago? that, I'm like, why the that's, hell would you have to sign? So the, I don't actually know if you signed one. I cons- had to sign one when I became an instructor. I don't yeah. know if lecturers actually I've, have to to I've, the I've Constitution. Yeah. No, I've signed straight it. up. Yeah, I've signed it. Yeah, any employee of any state institution. Yeah. At that least is, as far as I've done it, so I know. So, what it so my wife's a special education teacher and. Be interesting to ask her if she's ever had to. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's in your like huge packet of employment. Well, you never pay attention. Like, to it, yeah, yeah. Exactly. but like, why? Why? Well, okay, I would, I could like, 
Like some of it, I like could first wax it, poetic like, on why for a while yeah, first about amendment stuff would be yeah, obviously con, you know, a big one, right? Like con, as control of yeah. narrative, yeah. and yeah. we can get conspiratorial all we want, but but that's the question, right? Okay, so the three of us assigned it. Does that end ever? I mean, we're still employed, so we well, can we couldn't even make that argument. You I can. got out of the army in two thousand six. Yeah, am I still? I mean, Spooner would say no for sure, right? Yeah, I and but I, like I said, I use it. And arguments against, you know, the current administration, like, you know, I got a purple heart, I swore an oath, blah, 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 blah. But like, God, yeah, this is, but I mean, then, then we're falling back on some antiquated 200 plus year old document that is almost unapplicable in 2019. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's basically what we're saying. Yeah, like, I mean, and we know how that works when we're, I mean, religions are a great corollary because theirs are like 2,000 years old and they're trying to now apply those 2,000 years later. Even 200 years later, what does this mean, right? What does this mean? Well, that brings us back to like, <clears throat> and Spinner talks a lot about, it's not about interpreting what the writers were trying to convey or trying to judge like what they were trying to explain it's about this is what they wrote this is what they meant and you know this is like the original originalist argument which i feel like today is taken to but like, spooner was super say extreme fine that's between them and them and does not apply to him okay, 100 sure. years I, later i'm going yeah. back to previously the constitution of no authority i'm going back to the unconstitutional Okay. Of of anti-slavery or of slavery, um. So he argues that we can't interpret what the writers of the Constitution meant. We can't begin to put ourselves in their shoes. They wrote what they wrote, and we have to believe what they wrote. Which was his argument why slavery is unconstitutional under the Constitution. Which was you know opposite of what the garrisonians thought because they thought it was like a a bind with the devil and committed you to hell or whatever the exact term was um what i always found interesting the more that spooner wrote the more that garrison and even frederick Douglass kind of changed their tune to his belief but that's the question right like it's it's nice to hear that right okay the constitution deems slavery unconstitutional so the Constitution means what it means in that sense. So it's not a living document. In, I mean, it's not in a that fully sense. original document. And that's, I think, one of the things I do take kind of umbrage with is slaves themselves, <gasps> especially in northern colonies like Massachusetts, had won their freedom by also making the same argument decades before Spooner's even born. Sure. But what I'm getting at is present day representatives like to use the constitution for a multitude of arguments and say especially in the left it's a living document right it's meant to be molded Mm -hmm. and crafted (sighs) Mm -hmm. which i don't so much disagree with so like where do we we fit with that right if spooner wants to say the constitution means means what it means his original originalist argument that it didn't explicitly advocate slavery and we agree with that because nowhere in the Constitution, word by word, does it say, like, it's cool for you to own somebody else. But today, mm. when we want to argue about— Some would debate the 13th Amendment, which comes along later. Sure, but I'm talking about in Spooner's time. But today, folks want to go, 
Oh, it says I I'm, I could bear arms. Doesn't say what kind of arms. So I'm allowed to have this machine gun. And folks on the right like to use that argument. And there's folks on the left that want to use other amendments and other arguments of the Constitution and kind of mold and bend. So, like, is the Constitution in stone or is it moldable? Or should we just fucking trash it in every generation? I mean, that's the Jeffersonian argument, right? Rewriting like, new. Yeah, I'm, I'm for trashing it. And as much as I'm a constitutionalist and I appreciate the fuck out of the Constitution— I would rather every generation pick the years, 20, 30, 35 years, trash it, rewrite a new one, get the explicit consent of people in a vote, and then go from there. There's no reason not to in 2019. Exactly. We do have the technology to do that now. Everyone has an iPhone. It can be like agreed upon and whatever. I mean, we've, we've managed to make Wikipedia a democratic thing. We can't make a constitution. Like I, uh, Yeah, but I mean, this goes back to – that's the thing about like the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and all these like old original documents. Like we put them in these bulletproof cases and we put them on walls – and we frame them in a way where they're like supposed to be worshipped. Correct, which is idolatry. Exactly. Uh, and I'm uh, yeah, and I'm saying this is wrong, but that's that's what happens, right? And that's what happens with a lot of folks when they say, Oh no, the constitution is what it is. Get over it. I could bear arms, I could say what I want. So You're we make this argument all the time that when people going way back into ancient history began to write things down and, and quote unquote set them in stone in a way, even if the documents are living and we can add an amendment here or there, what you're doing is the minute you write it down and place it on a pedestal, this is a move for power and authority. This is not a move for democracy or equity or equality. It is about domination and subjugation. I am writing this document from a point of some sort of authority, whether that authority is through an electoral college or whether that authority is because I have the divine right of Lord Marduk, whoever am I that might be. That's what we're seeing here, even with the Constitution. The Constitution is not preserving the equity or equality of the human beings that live here, even as a contract. It is a contract that preserves the social hierarchy of the country as it existed in 1789 as best it can. That's what it does. Right. It goes back to And the, that is a country that is wildly inequitable. And it, it goes back to the argument is the Constitution was never meant as a contract between the government and the people. It was meant as a contract between the government and the folks that represent the government. It put a limit on what elected folks were allowed to do and not do over the people they supposedly But even Scooter admits that not everybody gave consent to those people exactly. to represent and, them. Slaves and, didn't give their right. consent. And he, Women didn't give their he consent. Used, yeah. What I'm talking about is use that as a, a thought experiment. Like even if it's this tacit you know, consent. But no, I go back to like what you were just saying. I never thought about the constitution as a contract. I still would side on the side that it's not an actual contract, but I do believe that it requires the consent of the people that it's supposed to govern over. And especially the powers it gives the institutions and people that are supposed to govern over like you know the masses and okay, even so today even today it'd question. be the same thing as like an apple agreement if even if they did it today everyone would probably still just check and agree because they don't want to have to read it so that's exactly fine. what yeah. my question was going to be so yeah. you asked the question alan earlier of like if instead of the 
taxes just being pulled out of your paycheck every year you had to sit down and decide how many taxes you how much taxes you were going to pay if we presented the constitution to every single u.s citizen let's say even though that's problematic in itself but nobody say, would sign it how many people would sign it no one people would sign it i think everybody would sign it. i don't think so yeah i think it would be the complete opposite i think of a minority of people would sign it just to sign it and I think a massive argument would ensue over the language, and we'll go back, and then this takes us back to interpretation, originalism, all these kind of things. I would, I honestly believe that if, let's say, yearly with your taxes, you had to write out a check for taxes, but you also had to sign your explicit agreement to the Constitution, there'd be a bigger uproar of people signing the Constitution than paying, you know, their ten grand a year check for taxes. I, you, I think most people would just sign it, just like I said, just like they do with an Apple agreement, or just like they do. Because honestly, things that aren't even related to the Constitution make these determinations for us. Our society's fast paced, great acceleration. I got to get to work. I got to watch TV. I got to play this video game. I got cat videos to watch. I got to pick the kids up. They got to go to soccer practice. All of this actually informs more of our decisions than just about anything else at this point. So I think people would just be like, I'm already living this life. I'm socialized slash conditioned into doing these things. And I can't be inconvenienced with thinking too hard about this checkbox here. Sure. But if you put that in front of people's faces, they're not going to read it. Who reads the Apple agreement? Yeah, I think it's funny to think about the Constitution as the terms of agreement of our society. Yeah. No one reads it, every, right? Like, I huh. kind of agree that... No one cares. If you sent everyone a pack, like the little Constitution booklet, and said, you have to sign this contract and send it back to the government, I agree that no one would read you it. You guys should do that. They can't even Google their candidates for, like, city council, you and you do, think they're going to read the Constitution? Do that, do that as an experiment in your classes. I'd be inclined to agree... What you're citing on that, like a minority would sign so I teach, it. But I, obviously, but, but early I, US I history. feel like if this was alongside having to write a check for taxes, people would open this up and be like, "Where the fuck is my money going to?" I you have a lot of faith. Like I said, I've been doing like oh, it's early not US, it's not faith. US history. It has nothing at, to do with faith. At at multiple institutions, and and one of the things we discuss, and just like we have in this podcast, is the framing of the Constitution, and we go through the various uh, uh, parts of it: Article One, Two, Three, what executive, legislative, judicial, and the Bill of Rights that was kind of like the compromise. So more and more states, we do this whole project, and you know what percentage of human beings walk into a collegiate classroom and have ever read any of that? They may actually have read it. That's the sad part. Again, ninth grade civics, I'm making the joke. I know they actually had to read some of it in ninth grade civics, but who remembers or cares about it? It is such a small, minute portion of the pot. The only ones they know are part of the First Amendment, and they all know the second one. But then any other like parts, that, that's it. They, they don't know anything else. Oh, anything else? It's interesting. It's funny that they like only make it to number two, and like number three, even like people don't even know. Yeah, the quartering things. Yeah. you know, it's done. We're done. That's why it's funny though. <laughs> like it's the third one, and no one knows it. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I mean, we could probably discuss it. How does that relate to the contract idea of Spooner? I think it actually is. It's 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 a pretty good point that that I think we're having a debate on here. I maybe am being pessimistic and think people are too busy or just not interested or care about other things to even bother to read the document and would just, again, they, they'd give their digital thumbprint or whatever it would take you and they'd the, agree. The you cost, think if it's attached to a ten grand check that that would make them read it? I think if, let's say, every January you had to sit down and you say so you got a letter from the IRS 
<clears throat> what your yearly taxes were. But along with that letter was the Constitution plus, I don't know, maybe a small tidbit of where your taxes are going. People would, one, freak out over the amount of money they'd have to pay yearly. Because once it comes out of your paycheck, if it's not there, nobody gives a shit. Right. You, you've never even expected to have and it. And two... It would force folks to read, like, okay, where's my money going? Even if it was skimmed, they'd be like, where's my money going? And people would lose their mind. They care so On how little. general. If they're not willing to is. read the contract behind their $400,000 house or their $50,000 lease or car loan, I just don't. I mean, all people know is like, okay, I bought a $400,000 house. My mortgage is two grand. Right? But that comes out almost automatically every month or you just know every month they have to write a check for 2000. What I'm saying is once a year, <clears throat> it would become normalized. Like just like a mortgage, just like a car loan. after a while. Yeah. <clears throat> but in the beginning, people would lose their minds. If you had to sit down and write a check, even if it was for $400 or $40,000, people would lose their mind because when it comes to social psychology, the risk of losing money as opposed to gaining money is higher. So what if you like claim zero the entire year? Like we could force it upon ourselves, right? We could claim zero and then at the end of the year we would have to write that check. We could do it if we really wanted to. The the funny thing is like no one would save the money, so you would have you wouldn't be able to pay. Oh, no, it, nobody but, would be able to. Do yeah. That. Oh, I mean unless you're like the 1%. Yeah. Yeah, nobody would be able to to write that check. I would be able to write that check. Mm-hmm. Come the end of the end of the year, and that's what I'm getting at. You know, like it's normalized because it just comes out of your paycheck because we're so used to this direct deposit, and we and also we're older. We come from a generation that we used to get physical paychecks. Yeah. I remember getting physical paychecks and having to go to the bank and you know, like depositing my paycheck and you know seeing on there where this went and that went. But now it's just like you wake up on the first or the fifteenth, and it's like boom. Money's in my account. I don't know what was taken out. I don't really think about it because if it wasn't there, nobody gives a shit. You know, I also think if like if it was there for if you saw, say you get paid three thousand dollars every two weeks, right? So you wake up on the first, there's three grand in there. Come the third, you look at your paycheck, there's twenty seven hundred dollars in there. You're gonna be like, where the fuck did that three hundred dollars go? Well, it goes to taxes. People would give a shit then. But since it just happened simultaneously, nobody pays attention. I fully agree with that. Like George said earlier, like you don't even expect to have that money. It's no. just gone right away. Yeah. You budget you budget it out already, you know? That's why they ask you when you're applying for like a credit card or a house or a car, what do you make gross? What do you make net? Like that's So is that consent? To to for, to consenting the U.S. government? Mm-hmm. No, because it goes back to Spooner's argument with taxes. No, it's not consent. So voting is not consent. Taxes are not consent, and we haven't signed anything. How are we kind of concluding the ideas on Spooner here? Where is he at? What do we think of no treason? Um, because I think the the United States government has big guns <laughs> and big armies that. I mean, we could talk about asymmetrical warfare and how it's not about like force on force if we, you know, want to cause damage. But I, I really think it comes down to the lack of people in our country giving a shit over the last 200 years. 
So it's just apathy. That's yes. That's what's it's gotten us where we're at. And I bet if you sat, and it was funny because I was in Starbucks this morning, going over this and kind of made, taking some notes. And there was a guy sitting across from me, and I really wanted to ask him how he felt about the Constitution, if it had any authority over us. <clears throat> and I should have because I feel if you stop like ten people on the street, <clears throat> I'd say eight of them have only read the preamble. Maybe half of that have read more than half of it. And I'd say none of them have an opinion on it whatsoever. Or depending on what news station they watch, they have an opinion on it. I think your estimates are high. I don't think 8 out of 10 have read the preamble. I definitely don't think 5 out of 10 have read half of it, for sure. I mean, I think the preamble just goes along with in school you know so technically yes everybody could say they've read it because like i said every school has taught at least parts of it or all of it but what they absorbed and what was retained and all of those things like that that's just not a big part of people's lives if you attach money to it would it become more important probably i don't i don't see it changing a whole lot of things but i mean like i said that's kind of what we're at well i mean spooner's main points like again this is the constitution it was written at least for him a hundred years earlier for us a couple of hundred years earlier and that in and of itself means posterity is meaningless none of us have have signed anything we are not liable to what is contained in this contract that's but the first argument the Second, three of the three of us actually have well the three of us actually have but but yes Sec- secondly uh the fact that we if anyone chooses to vote that does not bind them contractually to the constitution and third just because taxes are taken nine times out of ten or maybe ten times out of ten against our will that is also like those are his three main arguments that is not making it a contract so what what do we think is this thing a contract well it goes back to the question i asked earlier was the constitution written to be considered a contract i mean spooner's argument is no he says that even if it was a contract at the time, it could only be considered a contract between the men that had physically signed the contract. And that even then, if we considered that a contract, they had no power to bind anyone past their generation exactly. to that contract. Yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. We're on. We're I mean, I don't of... think we were going into this thinking that we'd have any disagreement that none of the three of us view this as a contract. Right. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess that's, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of where we stand on, on Spoonder's legal document or legal argument, the constitution of no authority. I, I think that's, that's where he that. gets docked though, by a lot of legal theorists. If you yeah. dig deeper is they feel he puts too much into the argument of like contractual law mm-hmm. and less into like the meaning, but then Spooner, Spooner fires back. It's like, no, we're not talking about what the framers meant when they wrote it or how we're supposed to interpret it. It's what they wrote, right? Like, that's why he says slavery is unconstitutional because nowhere in the constitution it says you're allowed to own somebody else. So that's, that's what I'm getting at. I never thought the constitution was a contract. I read Spooner years ago, never thought it picked him up again in the last couple of weeks. I don't think it's, it's a, it's a contract. I always kind of felt like it was just this, guideline-ish type of thing that we put in a fancy frame and hung on walls to people to worship. And it's sad when you see government officials who cite it, who have absolutely no friggin' idea like what it means, 
but then again so this is what, his what re- does it re- what does it really mean you know? i mean here's his response to that idea like from the crit- critics that think he's looking at it overly contractually well this is what he has to say he says the very judges who profess to derive all their authority from the constitution from an instrument that nobody ever signed would spurn any other instrument not signed that should be brought before them for education no exactly yeah, that's, that's his mic drop right, right? yeah before, yeah before that he argues well, I mean, he consistently argues that it's there's no authority, but he talks about if it's a contract, here's why it's bullshit. Then I always thought that piece was 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 super compelling, um, and I think we talked about this before. You know, the mics were on, um, and then post that, he gets more into like we talked about a little bit earlier the the moneyed interest in the government, and just to go back, did he name the Rothschilds again, which who the fuck back then was naming seriously the Rothschilds in a negative who today way? Is naming the Rothschilds? Well, no, yeah, nobody. Yeah, yeah I mean, who, who, who brings them up ever? I think Jared's point is key, though, and I was exact just about to bring that up. That I love that argument that he talks about how the judges who take their authority from the Constitution itself in a courtroom will just as quickly throw out any contract that doesn't meet the very specifics of contract law, but the constitution itself doesn't meet the specifics of contract law. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. And what I hope is more legal, legal scholars are picking up Spooner. Um, Like I said, I found the most recent was, I think it was 2010 court case that he was cited in uh, one of the chapters of no treason. Um, I, I do think outside of, you know, cause he never put labels on himself. So outside of like, you know, anarchistic or, you know, volunteerism thought or as much as we all hate the word libertarianism. Um, I think he's a force to be reckoned with coming forward with how the constitution is supposed to be interpreted. Not only as like an originalist point of view, but also, you know, is it a living document? Can we mold and mend it? Because pre-Civil War, he was kind of able to move it around until he, you know, because he gets this bad rap that he was a racist mm-hmm. because he was against the Civil War. I mean, he was like one of the earliest abolitionists, but he was against the Civil Civil War only because he felt, and this goes back to like what we were talking about, constitutional authority, he felt that the North was forcing their government on the unwilling South. Nothing to do with... Yeah, from a legal perspective, he respected the South's secession movement. Yeah. Purely on legal grounds. Nothing to do with slavery. Nothing to do with that. He was 100% against it, but he was against the Civil War because of the legal argument that the North had no right to force their government on the South. And the more I think about that, I don't know. You know, maybe because it's, you know, 2019 and the world we grew up in, I... I kind of think like, no, it's fucking slavery. We should have right. burned the South to the ground or whatever, you know. Um, but no, I'm glad we talked about Spooner. Um, I hope more people pick him up because he's super interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Like I said, I'd never even heard of him until Alan mentioned him to me a couple of years ago. Um, I think that's a pretty good place, though, to cut off the episode. We're going to continue conversations on Spooner in future episodes. We'll do the uh his views on slavery uh etc uh in the future 
so you can catch us at revolutionandideology.com or send us a message on Twitter. We're at Rev and Ideology. We have a YouTube channel, too. You can subscribe to us there. Uh, once again, I'm Nick, and I want to thank Alan for coming on for sure. Jared, as usual, take it easy. All right. We'll see you guys next time. Later.